Today we have another Adventure Rider Radio exclusive rider skills segment. The topic of which uh, we're going to cover today is bike setup. And I'm excited to have Chris Birch back to do this one. Chris is one of the world's most well-respected rider trainers. Um, He's got some tips that we haven't heard before on Adventure Rider Radio. And he also has a great way of looking at tire selection and tire pressure. There's some really good tips in this one coming up. My name is Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. Stay with us. We got a good one for you. Before we get started, I want to thank these fine companies that helped get this episode out today. Best Rest Product is the maker of the Cycle Pump, the best tire inflator for motorcyclists. It'll inflate your flat tire in less than three minutes. Made in the USA, comes with a lifetime warranty. They also distribute Googletech filters, cyclepump.com. It's wind pressure that powers the Moto Breeze chain oiler. No electrical or vacuum connections. It delivers the oil to a felt pad on your swing arm. No nozzles near your sprockets. One ounce of oil gets 1,000 miles or 1,600 kilometers. Get more miles from your chain and sprockets. Motobreeze.com. And Green Chili Adventure Gear offers American-made heavy-duty luggage systems for all types of motorcycles. You can turn any dry bag into luggage using their strapping system. And, of course, Green Chili Adventure Gear is tested in extreme weather and terrain to withstand the abuse that adventure riding gives it. Tough, reliable gear. GreenChiliADV.com. I'm Sam Manick. Ted Simon. Austin Vince. Simon Pavey. Brian Field. Helga Pedersen. Jocelyn Snow. Charlie Borman. Carl Parker. Simon Thomas. Lisa Thomas. Grant Johnson. Jimmy Lewis. Elspeth Jim Jansen, and you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. Skills is an exclusive program we developed here at Adventure Rider Radio designed to give you tools that can improve your riding skills both on and off-road. Now, of course, this is not meant to be a substitute for professional training. These are ideas and concepts that should you choose to try, you're doing so at your own risk. Now, today we've got Chris Birch back on the show. Chris is going to walk us through bike setup. That's our, our topic for today for Rider Skills, bike setup. Now, setting up your bike might seem on the surface at least to be, well, maybe an unexciting topic. But like most things motorcycle, once you begin to peel back the layers, it not only becomes more interesting, but at the same time, it reveals things that you may not have realized and you may not have understood that they have such a a large effect on your, your skills and the way you ride your bike. And others that could have been causing you problems that uh, are easily solved with a proper setup. And it's just like building a, a house. You know, if you start with a solid foundation, everything that builds on top of it is workable. You know, everything works out on top of it. But if you start with a poor foundation, it's just endless problems going forward. And often you can't even figure out where these problems have come from. That's the whole point of our rider skills, of course. And bike setup is is the start. Chris Birch has a, a video series that he's recently released, a very, very good video series. And that's where he starts on the video series as well, right here at Bike Setup. Now, we're very lucky to have some of the top rider trainers in the world on Adventure Rider Radio. And the reason that they're top is because they've spent untold hours not only riding, but thinking, testing, developing more efficient ways to ride and developing their skills in ways that few could devote the time to discover, let alone the determination and all the other factors that go along with it. So we benefit from their hard work by listening to what they have to say. 
Chris Birch has been riding since he was a kid. He was born into a motorcycle family. He quickly advanced even beyond his motorcycle family skills, which were quite high. He's an eight times New Zealand enduro champion. He's won three times at the Roof of Africa. He stood on the podium seven times at Red Bull Romaniacs. Uh, He even rode the Dakar. He's got all kinds of other accolades. Chris is a KTM ambassador and has been since 2007. He's well known for his skill for riding, in particular, adventure bikes. And now he spends his time teaching riders all around the world to improve their riding skills for both dirt bikes and adventure bikes. Chris, welcome back. Thanks for having me. It's, It's good to be back chatting to you guys again. You're getting all uh, all set up and ready for the summer now? Yeah, uh, well, nope. We're going into our winter here on this side oh, of the planet. So. I forgot, I forgot <laughs> yeah. about that. I so I'm getting set up for winter. Yeah, we're, we're still going to keep, I've got, of course, going to keep riding. Um, so it's, yeah, getting the waterproofing out, uh, trying to dig out the winter gloves and, yeah, <laughs> and try not to pay too much attention to the fun you guys are having on your side of the planet. <laughs> well, it's, and it's vice versa. I mean, it's only fair that we get it now. But I didn't realize that you were, you were actually going through the whole lockdown thing in your season. That's the worst. I mean, for us, it was like, so I think some of the, you know, for some of us, the way we sort of got through this thing or getting through it is thinking, well, it's not really great riding right now anyway. Yeah, there, were, there was definitely a bit of that. Uh, to be honest, we most people in New Zealand, uh, you know, the, the true addicts ride all year round anyway. Our, our winters are nowhere near as severe as, as a lot of parts of the world. So, you know, down south we might get a bit more snow and ice, but uh, we, we ride up this end of the country all year round and just embrace the mud and embrace the rain and becomes part of the adventure. Mm. What are you using for um, wet weather gear? Um, I've got a, a few different options, you know, depending on what I'm doing and how hard I'm working. You know, uh, if it's just a small local ride where I'm going to be doing a lot of single track, I just deal, I just get wet and, you know, put a bit of, um, polyprop on at the bottom and just to keep myself warm. But then if I'm going out on the adventure bike, it's, you know, it's the full, uh, the full Gore-Tex setup. Um, I like the big over the bar mittens, the, the mitts that you put your hands in. I, I don't like big bulky winter gloves too much, so mm. I, I won't run the big farmer style, uh, mittens and yeah the, the big thing we have here is is it gets wet and slippery and muddy you know like you can't even put your bike on the side stand off road because it'll just sink into the mud so it's more about setting the bike up and setting getting your tires set up correctly and actually being able to ride the terrain rather than keep yourself warm <laughs> well bike setup is what we're after today and um, th- this video series that you have done which is turning out to be very very popular from what i'm seeing that's the first video that you do in the series bike setup it's kind of natural isn't it to, to start right there absolutely and it, it doesn't matter what sort of school we're doing whether it's adventure bike hard enduro or just you know dirt bike trail ride the first thing we always do is focus on that bike setup uh, because it's you know in terms of, of time it's the potential to get the, the most improvement in the shortest amount of time for a rider. Uh, you know, having that good setup, that uh, nice, you know, the bike looking after you, the bike behaving itself is, man, it's, you can change people's lives in 10 minutes for no expenditure. You know, the thing is for this, we can understand why a lot of people don't do this because the bikes come from the factory, they're set up and there's no adjustment there. Well, I shouldn't say there's no, a lot of times there's no obvious adjustment um, for the bike and no one mentions anything when you buy the bike, you go into the dealer and we've talked about this before on this show, you go in and you buy your bike and, and it's not like even a bicycle. If you go in and buy a bicycle, they'll set you up to the bicycle. But for some reason with a motorcycle, we don't talk set up at all. So, I mean, it's understandable why many people just will, will skip this step and think, well, how important can it be if the manufacturers don't build it in? 
yeah, that, that, that's a strong point. And to be honest, it's it's probably something in the uh, in the industry that we're a bit lacking on. And you know, it's it's interesting. I, I do a lot of cycling, a lot of mountain biking as well. And it, it's hard talking to and teaching guys that come from a really strong cycling background, like for them to get their head around the fact that we all ride the same frame, <laughs> size frame, true. let alone you know the same basic setup is a real head scratch. You know, like how does a small guy ride the same frame as a you know a six foot five guy? Uh, surely there must be bigger size bikes, but no, definitely not. But that really points something out, though, is that the the bikes really aren't set up ideally, probably for anybody or very few people. No, probably not. I mean, manufacturers have they do you know, obviously do a lot of research. They uh, they work out what their sort of global average customer looks like, and they try as much as possible uh, around design limitations um, to to match it to that to that uh, average sort of a rider and the rest of us kind of have to adapt. Mm-hmm. Well, you're, you're connected with KTM. Um, you are a brand ambassador for KTM. Do you happen to know what their supposed average person looks like? Um, not a hundred percent. No, it, it varies from category to category. So example, like their, their enduro bike average guy is different to their adventure bike average guy, which is different to their road bike average guy. Um, if I start giving you numbers, I'll get it wrong. <laughs> Well, I mean, if you just look at the bike lineup, you could easily walk in and say, okay, well, this street bike is for short people and, and this uh, dual sport bike is for tall people. Yeah, I guess you could. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you could. And every time I jump on a, on a sports bike, which doesn't happen that often, I'm like, oh my God, this thing is tiny. Yeah. How can something this small have this much power? This is insane. <laughs> I did that when my son bought a little uh, sport bike and, and I rode it from the place that he bought it to his house. And to me, it was just, it was so tiny. And when you stand up, it's sitting way down by your knees and stuff. It, it just seems like such a tiny little bike, but it was pretty neat to ride. Yeah. But then something that's so small that goes so insanely fast. <laughs> mm, yes. That is true. Well, okay. So bike setup, what, what do we start with? We, we start, um, let's, let's talk, um, overall concept. We, we we're talking about this, why we set the bike up. Um, what sort of things are we going to be looking at? What, what are we setting up? So for me, uh, I look at my setup, um, mostly in terms of tuning my bike into the conditions or into the type of riding that I'm doing or the type of riding that's important to me that what I want to focus on. So in my mind, it's, it's more about how, making my bike work better in the specific terrain that I'm going to be experiencing in, in my ride or what's important to me than it is focusing more about how I fit on the bike. So a problem we, I quite often see guys falling into is they'll do all their bike setup, all their control setup, handlebar setup in the garage, on the center stand, on, without going anywhere, you know, purely focusing on comfort and how it feels rather than focusing on how the bike's going to behave, how the bike's going to perform, what's actually going to happen when you're out on the trail. Now, oh, what feels different in the garage, comfortable in the garage, might actually be creating a really big issue when you get out on the trail. That's really interesting. Okay, that's a unique way to look at it. Now, I mean, really, so what you're talking about is you're talking about adjusting this thing all the time. You're going to adjust it one way when you're going to go run sand, another way when you're going to do mud. I mean, with this, you almost need some speed nuts on your on your clamps. Yeah, I mean, we all we all ride with with tools as adventure riders. You know, once you get your head into it, you know, changing your bar position takes. What's it take? It takes as long as it takes to get your, your tools out, basically. Mm-hmm. So you could do it and very very quickly. Um, I think I'm not saying unless I'm really really experiencing a problem mid ride, 
uh, I would generally just sort of sort of leave it alone mid ride, but it's more it's more the day the weeks before I okay, I'm going to go up to the north of New Zealand this weekend. I know there's going to be a lot of soft sand. I know I'm going to want a lot of stability out of my bike, and I'm going to do a lot of off road. Okay, let's get it set up for that. Or okay, I'm going riding out east this week this weekend. I know I'm going to do a lot of cornering, a lot of firmer ground. I'm going to be you know doing a bit more street riding. How am I going to get my bike to set up for that? Make it make it behave itself. So for for me, it's more about tuning my bike into the average of the ride than it is you know riding on the pavement and going oh I've got some sand I'll stop and quickly adjust it for that you know five kilometers of sand and stopping adjusting again that that's not going to get me anywhere. Right. How much difference does it make having the bike set up as to not having it set up? The best way uh, I'll answer your question would be just to tell you a story. I love that. The time. Okay, cool, <laughs> cool. So rather than give you my opinion, I'll give you a, a story. Okay. Um, KTM Australia Adventure Rally, uh, maybe three or four years ago, one of the most amazing events that I've been on. Uh, we took nearly 200 riders from Darwin in the very far north of Australia all the way to Alice Springs, straight through the centre of the Northern Territory. Um if you guys are bored, check out the video. It's It was for a, a manufacturer. It was quite an insane undertaking. Um, super, super remote, really lots of soft sand, big, long distances. Um, the first day, at the end of the first day, we had a lot of soft sand in the first day. We had a lot of guys really, really concerned, you know, coming to the mechanic set up like, hey, guys, I, I'm really, really struggling in the sand here. You could see the concern in their eyes. You could see the fear in their faces because they had seven more days. And it's like, I don't know if I can do this, man. And we got together and we kind of came up with, right, this is how we're going to set these guys' bikes up for them. We're going to do these changes as our, as our kind of a blanket answer to the problem to get the guys through the soft sand better. And we set everyone that came to us, we go, hey, we'll do forks here, bars here, levers here, suspension here. The next day at more soft sand. We had so many guys coming up to us at the end of the day, just like, oh, I'm so much happier now. My bike's doing exactly what it wants to do. I can relax. I can look around. I can enjoy the ride. I'm not, the fear is gone. Wow. And it probably took us about three or four minutes to do each bike. Whew. Wow. Okay. So that's a good sign. Yeah. It's, it's makes a huge, huge difference. It's very powerful. Okay, you've set a real high bar here, now you realize. <laughs> yeah, I know, I'm digging myself into a corner. <laughs> <laughs> the listener is going to expect huge results from this. Okay, so um, what are we yeah. talking about adjusting, just just quickly, to overall? So for that that scenario, coming back to that, that story, uh, the first thing we did was we lowered the forks and the triple clamps. <sighs> so, okay. uh, I, I'm sorry, did, uh, I'm going to end up talking about KTMs all the time, because that's what I know, but... All motorbikes are the same, you know, bike, bikes are bikes, you know, the, the wheels are in the same place, the handlebars are in basically in the same place, motorbikes are motorbikes. Right. Um, so the KTM, uh, in this case, we're mainly talking about, you know, the big twins, you know, the big V twins, mm-hmm. the forks all come set with two lines showing at the top of the triple clamp, uh, poking, you know, two lines poking at the top of the triple clamps. So we loosened off the triple clamps, we slid the forks down, so the top of the fork was flush with the top of the triple clamp. So that obviously raises the front of the bike, slightly, slightly rakes out the steering head angle, takes a bit of pressure out of the front tire, relaxes the bike, makes it more inclined to track in a straight line. Um, The next thing we did is we rolled the bars back towards the rider more. So not necessarily, you know, if you're standing in the the workshop, 
maybe the bars now feel a little bit cramped, not quite as comfortable. But when you roll the bars back, the bike becomes more stable in a straight line as well. And the last thing we did was just wind a little bit of preload on the quick adjuster that all the most adventure bikes have. A bit of preload out of the rear shock to again just drop the back end down a bit more, take a bit of that pressure out of the front tire, rake the steering head out a little bit more. And those three changes goes from a bike that's, you know, going down the sand road like looking like a snake, flapping around the place, to tracking dead straight, able to relax, able to to get to the overnight stop in one piece. Wow. When you're talking about these adjustments, these are very, very small adjustments as far as, you know, movement, as far as uh, physical distance. I mean, you're talking about dropping the fork tubes, what? Um, yeah, it's probably about, it would have been about five, 10 millimeters probably okay. on the so, forks there. Yeah. Well, that, that's, a, that's a little bit. I mean, that, that's considerable. But, yeah. but I think for a lot of people, they'll look at this and they'll think, well, how can that tiny little bit of, of change make all the difference? But but this is the sort of thing that yeah, happens yeah. with your car when you take it in to get it set up. It's all very, the front end, it's all very minor adjustments that makes that car track down the road so that you can hold yeah. the steering wheel with one finger and it'll, the steering wheel then will return as you make a corner, all to do with the geometry setup uh, of the front end. Definitely, and you can look at it in, you know, in, in the marketing stuff that comes out. You know, all new geometry for 2020, radical changes. We've gone half a degree steeper in the steering head angle. <laughs> okay, <laughs> but then when you actually get on the bike, like, okay, you can really notice that change. So yes, small changes can have huge effects on how the bike behaves. Okay, let's get to it. Bike setup. Where do we start? So uh, with setting up any motorbike, uh, the first thing I always look at uh, is the handlebar position. So that the angle of the handlebars, because um, that has one of the biggest effects on the bike and the way the bike handles. And I've actually just, I've just come inside today uh, to, to talk to you from going through all this. Uh, KTM's very, very kindly just giving me a, a 1290 Adventure R to play around with. So this is all really fresh in my mind. I was, I was doing this 20 minutes ago. Um, and how I always try and start off uh, as my kind of neutral setup is to try and imagine the the rise part of the bars, so between the clamp and where the, 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 the bars start to come up, uh, that angle, the angle of that upright part, and my forks to be roughly in parallel. I hope that makes sense. Okay. Uh, I'm making uh, hand gestures here to try and help myself understand it, which probably won't cross over so well. <laughs> I, I guess if you looked at it, if you unbolted the handlebar itself and put it on the workbench where it would lay flat, you know, like as if, as if you were holding it against the workbench, that's the angle you're talking about. Uh, yeah. Yeah. That'd make sense. Yeah. Okay. So you're looking to get that roughly parallel. So a lot of people talk about getting those hand grips level. Does, does that come into it at all? I'm sure it does. And I don't think that's a bad way to describe it at all. It's not how I do it. I don't want to say it's right or wrong. Um, I personally try and focus more on the actual angle of the bars. That, that's just how I get how I get my head around it myself. Okay. Um, yeah, so on, on a dirt bike, like an EXC, like a dual sport bike, something like that, uh, we would say, express it differently. We would say that you want to have your bars and your forks basically in line, in direct line with each other. So the, 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 the rise of the handlebar follows the line of the fork. On most bigger adventure bikes, um, that's not possible. So we have to try and have the, the angle of the fork and the angle of the bar in parallel. Hopefully that, that makes it a more of a clearer des- description. It's because where the bar is mounted itself, because the bar, the bar is not mounted directly over the fork tubes. Is that what you're saying? 
Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So the, the offset is different on a lot of the bigger adventure bikes. Um, just the, actually it's where the forks are physically placed. Um, so to get more steering lock out of them, uh, the forks will often be, often be further forward. So you've got less, less offset in the dropout of the fork where the axle is than you would do on an enduro bike. So this may make more sense as you explain what you were talking about to changing the handling characteristics yeah. from rolling the bar forward is, or rolling it back. Can you talk about that? Cool. So the, a common issue that we come across, again, focusing more around around comfort than around um, around actual performance, a real common one would be, say, someone's come from a more street riding, you know, road touring sort of a setup, uh, background rather, a lot of the guys will have the bars rolled back towards them. So you have less stretch through your shoulders, less reach, especially on the bigger bikes, on the, on the big V-twins and that sort of thing, but they're already quite stretched out. So in that situation, if you imagine the bar and the, the fork working together, we would say the handlebar would be behind parallel with the forks. That situation, when you then go to stand up, off-road riding, get your weight through the fours to press that front tire into the ground, the forks are going to end up, sorry, the handlebars are going to end up quite close to you. You're not going to have a lot of spread in your body, so your stability can be really reduced. It's harder to stabilize your upper body when you hit those soft patches bad things can happen. Mm. And also, the more you roll the bars back towards you, the more stable the bike becomes, but the slower it is to respond to your inputs. So it'll track great in a straight line, but it's more inclined to drift wide in the corners and it won't tip into the turns quite so aggressively. Their responsiveness is dulled. If we go the other way around, we, we reverse the situation and we have the bars rolled too far forward, so push too far away from you. So the bars are kind of in front of parallel with the fork. The opposite becomes true. The bike becomes much more responsive to turn, becomes really quick, really agile, but loses a lot of its stability. So a good way to describe it is the bike becomes really, really responsive, but it responds just as quickly to an accidental negative input as it will respond to an intentional positive input. So the wobbles can get bigger and bigger. You know, if you feel the front starting to tuck into the turn, it'll tuck way more aggressively. That's where you get you know, a lot of those problems in the soft sand. And more inclined to head shake and, and flap around in the higher speed, uh, straight, straight line stability stuff. So that bar position, yes, we need to think about comfort in terms of your physical layout of you as a human. But it's really, really important to consider what that's doing to the geometry of the bike or the behavior of the bike on the trail. And that's what, kind of what I was talking about. You know, you don't want to be doing your setup in your garage on your center stand without factoring in how the bike actually behaves when you're riding it. So people often prioritize comfort in the garage over how the bike behaves on the trail. Now, if we can just sort of dig into this a little bit more to explain why. So when you roll the bars back, you said that the bike tends to be less responsive. When you roll the bars, the handlebars, we're just talking forward, yeah. it's more responsive. Yet you haven't changed anything really as far as the geometry from the steering head down. So can you explain this? Okay. I will do my best. I am not a motorcycle <laughs> engineer, so I, I can already think there's going to be people that know way more about the actual mechanics of science behind this than me. So I'm basing this predominantly on experience and research of seeing what people are up to around the, uh, around the world. So 
I'm going to get the engineering side of it a bit wrong. I apologize. Okay. Um, from what I've been told, you're basically subtly adjusting the bike's caster. So you're bringing that weight bias forwards and back. Uh, you're bringing your, your handlebar inputs for, forwards and back to adjust the caster of the bike. I don't understand it at 100% if that's right or wrong. I'm sure some of your listeners will know this better than what I do. The way I try and describe it to guys, if you go to a sand motocross track or a desert race or something like that, you'll see all the top guys with the bars rolled quite a long way back towards them. And that sand racing, high-speed stuff, those guys don't care about how hard the bike tips into the turn. They're not doing tight single track. They're wide open in third gear most of the time. All the bars will be rolled a long way back. Then if you go and look at, say, like a trials bike, the bars will be rolled a long way further forwards of parallel with the handlebars. Those guys, all they care about is responsiveness. They couldn't care less about high-speed stability. So those would represent the extremes either way of what we're talking about. Okay. And the other, the other reason I know it's true, because I've, I've spent years and years playing around with it. Well, that's what I was going to say. We're yeah. going to take your word for it anyway because of your experience level, obviously. But it's just nice to get some some idea of, of what the mechanics are behind it for those who, who yeah. like to understand the things that they're doing. Now, I, I mean, I know that you're not really changing the caster because you haven't changed anything from the steering head down, but you certainly are changing that the... Um, the connection with your hand. So you mentioned that rolling it forward gives it m- makes it react faster. Rolling it back makes it react slower. The bike reacting to your steering input uh, or any bumps you mentioned. Is there a better one to air on? I, to, that's where the terrain side of it starts to come into it, right? Mm. So and and why I'm making these changes to reflect my terrain. If I'm riding a lot of single track, uh, a lot of you know lower speed, tight, nagery sort of stuff, I want that quick turn and I want that responsiveness. So I'll if that's if my ride's going to do a lot of that, I'll push my bars a, a few degrees further forwards to you know magnify that effect of the bike. If I know I'm going to be doing some more high speed stuff, some faster stuff like our KTM Australia Adventure ride, I'll prioritize that stability. So I'll roll the bars back a bit to get that. And if you're doing sand, you're going to roll the bars back a bit and, and get a lot better handling. Yep. Okay. In that scenario. But then if we take that, that sand set up into a tight single track, you might find the bike's a bit dull to uh, dull to respond. It's not, not, as, not as nimble. So a good way to think about it is you just you understand what the position of the bar angle does. And then if you're experiencing a problem, you use that as a tool to fix the problem. If you're not experiencing the problem, there isn't a problem. Happy times. Carry on. Enjoy your ride. Makes sense. Okay. And and by you saying this, I realize that we shouldn't be afraid to make adjustments and then make more adjustments. Absolutely not. And you shouldn't be, especially in terms of a, you know, a control, like testing, playing around with your bike environment. Don't be afraid to go too far. How do you know what's bad if you haven't played around with it? So often guys like, oh, I'll just go a couple of degrees because I don't want to stuff this up. And then you might, unless you're really, really dialed into your bike, you might not feel that change. So when we have guys, you know, for, for multiple day camps and that sort of thing, I'll encourage them to make really big, stupid changes. We do it in a really controlled environment. We're not doing it like flat out down trail sort of thing. <laughs> so that they, uh, they get that real instant feedback and the instant understanding of, oh, gosh, okay, that's what that does. Mm-hmm. It's not like, oh, I think it's doing this. It's like, oh, wow, it is really doing this now. Um, so don't be afraid to go for those extremes. Okay, that, that's great. Okay, uh, what's next? Uh, so the next thing I would then look at is the position of my levers. And this can be uh, 
my take on it can be a bit, a bit more controversial. Not everyone loves this side of it. So I'll talk about what works for me. Um, so I run my levers basically parallel to the ground so that there's no, no downwards angle whatsoever. So for me, that's all about getting the heel of my palm, the very, very back edge of my palm, in behind my bar so that I can lean my weight down onto the, that heel, that really strong part of my palm, and completely relax my hand. If I have my levers pointing too far down, as I rotate my hand down and around to reach those levers, that heel of my palm comes out of engagement with the bar, and I have to hold on with my hand now. I have to hold on with my fingers to keep that solid grip of the bar. When I do that, my forearms become start, start to work, my shoulders start to work, I'm less inclined to relax, I'm more inclined to fight the bike. So for me, you know, I guess uh, a lot of a lot of your listeners, hopefully you've seen you know, the, this, this stupid sort of video, I shouldn't say stupid, the fun videos we do on these big adventure bikes. It's super, super important that I keep my upper body relaxed, keep my arms relaxed. As soon as I tighten up my arms, I start fighting against the bike and the way I try and describe it to guys is the bike I enjoy riding the most is, you know, my, my 1090. That thing's 230 kilograms and 130 horsepower. I ain't fighting that. That's not a fight I'm interested in trying to win. A lot of people, when they talk about setting up levers, they talk about keeping them in line so your your arm and your hand uh, are in line so you're, you're not stretching yep. your hand out. Uh, I like what you're saying. It makes perfect sense about having the palm and that connection on your bar. Does it matter? A hundred percent, it matters. Uh, it, it matters in a big way. So I, I've, you know, we talk about you know jumping on people's bikes before and trying out different technology. I've jumped on people's bikes before, which had the levers down, and I personally straight away feel a reduction in control. So I'm having to hold on to my bars. And the big thing we talk about uh, talk about this a lot as well is it can be a lot safer to have your levers higher because. Uh, you know, real common injuries in motorcycle riding and off-road, are, you know, broken wrists, broken thumbs, broken scaphoids, that sort of stuff. So imagine we're riding along, it all goes wrong and we smash into the drain onto the side of the road. If your wrists, if your hands are kind of pointing down, as you hit that big impact, your hands are going to roll over the top of the bars, crash into your hand guards, wrists, thumbs, all that sort of stuff comes into play. A good way to describe it, is, and, and with having your levers up, is it it pulls the front of your hands up. Obviously, that's a really, really strong way for your wrist to work. So, if you think of like an Olympic weightlifter, you know they're putting hundreds of pounds of strain and, and weight through their wrist, and they do that with their wrist with a hand bent up towards them, mm. not pointing down away from them. Another good analogy is: imagine we got got our truck stuck in the mud. And we had to get a whole bunch of guys to help us push the truck out of the mud. No one would choose to push it with their fingers pointing down. Everyone would choose to push it with their fingers pointing up. That's right. the strength in your arm. That's the strength in your wrist. Oh, that's perfect. Okay, that, that makes perfect sense. Okay, so uh, what else about the levers? Um, the other thing, especially with my clutch lever more so, and this, this is my trials, hard enduro background coming into things a bit more. Uh, I slide my clutch lever quite a long way inboard. So I'm right out uh, sort of on the last third of the lever. Um, what that does is it really increases the leverage ratio that I have. It lightens that clutch action. 
But also imagine I'm, I'm stuck on the side of a hill and I'm trying to get going and it's all loose and slippery and I wanted to put about two horsepower into the back tyre so I don't slide out. I need just enough to get moving but not so much that it spins up and I slide out. If my finger is really close to the pivot point, that amount of finger wiggle to really gently control that power is a really small amount of movement. We're talking millimetres. If my finger's right out on the, on the end of the lever, I'm pushing that, uh, releasing that power over a much greater range of motion for my finger. So not only does my clutch action become a lot lighter, but it allows me to be way more accurate with that clutch control, which again is, is super important when riding a big high horsepower bike in, in strange situations. The other big benefit with that as well is when you crash, your lever doesn't break because it's a lot weight, a lot further inboard. You know, if your handguards flex or move, your lever still doesn't come in contact with the ground, which is really nice when you're in the middle of nowhere. Right. I like the way you said when you crash. Oh yeah, it's a given. <laughs> yeah, it's a given. So that makes everybody yeah. feel better, I'm sure. <laughs> what about the brake lever? Anything special with that? Um, so again, I'm I'm focusing on that uh, just slightly downhill or parallel angle position. I've tried pushing my brake lever in like I do with my clutch. And to be honest, I find uh, it makes my brake become way too sensitive. I, I, there's just too much lever power in there then. That could be based on the bikes that I generally ride. So, you know, I'm, I'm riding the KTM Adventure bikes most of the time. They have really, really powerful brakes, you know, twin discs up front. And for off-road, I find when I slide my lever in, uh, I just have too much lever power. So I, I tried it and, I, and I've, I've gone back to pretty much the stock uh, positioning there. Um, in and out, but uh, but still just slightly downhill of parallel uh, in, on the angle. Now, do you also tell people not to do up the levers tight so they move? Uh, no, I don't do that. Um, I tell the guys to take the lever off completely, put two or three turns of PTFE plumber's thread tape around the bar, and then tighten the clamp up over the top of that. Um, oh, that way that's you interesting. Well, that way you can do the bolt up tight enough that it doesn't rattle loose over a long ride. Um, but if it does hit the deck, sorry, when it does hit the deck, it'll slide on the tape rather than uh, than snap the lever. So the whole, not, I find if you don't do them up, if you sorry, if you do the nut up, the bolt up loose enough that it can slide, it'll rattle loose over a long multi-day ride and be a pain in the ass. Mm, okay, so a little wrap of uh, of some tape underneath there that makes sense, and then you, then you do yeah. torque it to factory torque. I mean, I know uh, you're no, probably not torquing them, but. No, I actually quite like my torque wrench. I'm oh, okay. a big fan of it. Um, it's probably still a little bit looser than factory torque, but it, they're definitely a lot, not loose. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, I, 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 the way I kind of set it is I tighten it up until I can just get it to move when I, when I whack it with my hand. We're going to take just a quick break, and then we're going to come back. We're going to talk about swapping handlebars, handlebar risers, tires, tire pressure, a lot more coming up. Stay with us. No doubt you've got a computer that's connected to the internet, a smartphone that's connected online to all your favorite social media accounts. We're very connected nowadays in our cyber world that we spend a good portion of our time in. But how connected are you with your motorcycle? Being connected to your bike is a necessity if you're trying to increase your riding skills. And and if you hit any kind of dirt at all, which every rider is going to do it, even if you're a street rider, you're going to hit dirt. In fact, you cannot ride, or not ride well without being connected. If you're running uh, your stock foot pegs, then you're, you're not really connected. You need 
IMS Products foot pegs, designed specifically for riders like you and I, by riders, tested in extreme conditions that only like the highest level riders get to. They're built in the USA. They're warranted for life. They look great on the bike as well. IMS Products makes a full line of adventure motorcycle foot pegs to suit your style of riding. Have a look and grab a set of foot pegs that you can not only stand on, but you can depend on. IMSproducts.com. And uh, anytime you're dealing with them, throw in there that you heard them on Adventure Rider Radio. IMSproducts.com. Get outfitted, get trained, get inspired, get going. The world's waiting. That's what they say at Overland Expo. They also say that Overland Expo is the world's premier event for do-it-yourself adventure enthusiasts. And I know from people that have went to the event, it is a huge, huge ordeal with tons of information and things to experience for motorcyclists and four-wheelers. Now, I, I say events because there's actually three events for Overland Expo this year in the U.S. There's Overland Expo West in Flagstaff, Arizona. Overland Expo Mountain West, and that's the newest one in Loveland, Colorado. And then there is Overland Expo East in Arrington, Virginia. So with those events across the country, you kind of have no excuse to miss it. And you can also build it in, which is a great thing to do with this sort of event. If you're planning to go, build it into some sort of mini adventure that you're going to do. But a little tip here, you might want to make the adventure after the event, just in case anything goes wrong. You know, that way you get to the event and then you you, uh, go on your adventure afterwards. And if something happens, well not missing out on your your event. Now, Overland Expo West has a new date. It is July 24 to 26. That, that was, they changed the date um, because of the whole COVID thing going on. So they they pushed it back a little bit to, uh, to make sure that everything's up and running in that time. So July 24 to 26, and that's in Flagstaff, Arizona. And uh, that's, uh, I guess that's the original one, really. Mountain West is in Loveland, Colorado. It's August 28 to 30th, 2020. These are all this year. And then Overland Expo East is October 9 to 11th in Arrington, Virginia. Now, look, you've got to get your tickets online. You've got to get them in advance. So you can't just rock up to the gate and buy it. It doesn't work that way. So you've got to do it now. So drop by their website is overlandexpo.com and choose which uh, which one you're going to go to and book your tickets now. There's all different ways to experience it. There's so much going on there. I couldn't begin to cover it here. So you really got to drop by their website. And of course, anytime you're dealing with them, throw them an email, booking your, your tickets, whatever it is, please, anytime you can, throw in there that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. That's overlandexpo.com. And one more thing before we leave this, what about replacing the handlebars and what about risers? So yeah, replacing the handlebars is something that, especially if you're more off-road focused, is you can get some good benefit out of this on a lot of adventure bikes. And the main reason for that is the amount of sweep that a lot of adventure bike bars have so that they're kind of the rotate, the, the angle of pulling them back towards you. Um, that tends to put you into a more comfortable position when you have your elbows dropped and you have your elbows down, so more of a road-style setup. Uh, when we get into the off-road, uh, we want to have our elbows wide. So a lot of guys will talk about having your elbows high. I, I, I prefer the analogy of having my elbows wide. I try to make my elbows the widest point of my body. That gets my chest muscles engaged more, my triceps more engaged, and dramatically increases my stability on the bike when I'm riding off-road. But, of course, as I do that, as I swing my elbows out wide, my hands are going to swing around wider with it as well. So if I have a bar with a lot of sweep, it makes it quite uncomfortable to grip the bar properly. So that is something uh, that I 
that I do modify uh, that I do change on most of my adventure bikes is I I swap the the stock bar out for a more enduro focused bar in in terms of sweep. Now, is that mainly because of the way you're riding? Like, would the average rider benefit from that, or or does it is it going to depend totally on what they're doing? I, I think it's it's not so much what's in, I'm not doing it so much focus on what I'm riding. I'm doing on what I'm focusing on what's really important to me. So, you know, if my ride is made up of 50% highway and then 50% off-road, the 50% of the off-road is the bit that's really important to me. So I'll focus that my bike setup around that, that that really matters the most to me. Mm. And then I'll kind of suffer a little bit on the, on the highway. I'm happy to do that. Um, For some people, maybe the highway is more important to them. Maybe they're spending more time on that and they're willing to suffer a slightly less than ideal setup on the adventure. And that's the compromise, sorry, on the, in the off-road. And that's kind of the the unfortunate um, compromise we always have to make with adventure bikes, adventure riding. It's never, ever perfect. It's, it's a, it's a game of compromise and you kind of just have to, I think, look to see where you want to compromise. What's, what's the most important part of it to you. Yeah. My thought process is similar to what you're saying is, is that, um, I look for the places where I almost need the most help for me. And, and, you know, yeah. so you get into your off-road technical stuff. That's where I need the most help. Um, so I want my bike sort of set up for that. Not so much for the road. The road's easy. Yeah. I mean, the, the big thing for there is for me is tires. That's where I probably compromise the most. Like I much prefer the off-road stuff. You know, the road riding is there to get me to the, the off-road. So I'm going to run way more knobbly tires than I probably should be. And I know I'm just going to have to take it really easy. I'm not going to get the bike cranked right over. If the road gets wet, I'm going to take it really, really easy. And I'm just going to mellow out on the road and, you know, sacrifice that side of it more. Mm. And then when I get to this off-road, the bit that's important to me, my tires are going to be correct. I'm, I'm good to go. So, And you're always going to have that compromise. And the important thing is to think about what's important to you. What, do you, what are you going out for? Now, risers? <laughs> in the past, I've been quite vocal about this um, and probably a little bit rude, but I'll give you the, uh, the the nice, polite version of it. Generally, on the whole, I find that bar risers make it significantly easier and significantly more comfortable to ride your bike badly. <laughs> and again, well, well, I'll try and answer this with a story. So the, uh, the launch of the KTM 1290R in, in Peru a few years ago, one of the coolest launch I've ever been to. Like this was, I mean, if, you, if, there's a, if I've had one good job in my life, this is it. So we had the whole of the, the Paracas desert completely to ourselves. It was, a, it was all a massive nature reserve, but they gave us the, the go ahead. You know, we don't want you to go here. We don't want you to go there. But other than that, have at a beautiful coastal, adventure, uh, coastal desert all to ourselves. Wow. Um, I don't want to say a hundred, but a heck of a lot of brand new KTM 1290Rs, two shipping containers full of brand new tires ready to just be destroyed. Have at it, boys. Go for it. Um, so we, we'd sussed out the loops that we were going to take on. We, you know, we're there for like a week before the launch, sussed out all the loops, knew where we were going to go, knew the, where the best riding was. We had it all sorted. And then the day before the launch, before the journalists started to show up, the, um, the mechanics and the, the guys all got together like, hey, we feel the handlebars are too low 
uh, we think we should fit bar risers to all the bikes. We have enough. We can do it to all the bikes. It'll feel better for the journalists. And I was there as an ambassador and also Quinn Cody was there as an, as an ambassador. So Quinn Cody's, you know, multi-time Baja champion, Dak, done really well in Dakar. You know, he, he's the man, really good rider. And both me and Quinn were like, okay, cool. If you want to do that, go for it. But please, please don't touch our bikes. Just leave those, leave our ones alone. And we managed to skew the whole, the whole perception. And everyone was like, well, if, if those guys don't want them, what are we all doing? And they, we ended up running the whole, whole launch with the stock bar height. <laughs> um, with doing all these schools and teaching, you know, several hundred people a year, uh, n- the need to raise the bars is directly linked to whether or not people are using their hips properly. So if you have your hips pushed underneath you, we call it tucked butt syndrome. Um, it, it creates all sorts of other issues in your riding, but it also creates the need to raise the bars. As soon as you start to utilize your hips, the strongest joint in your body, um, the need for bar rises tends to go away on the, the majority of bikes. I mean, there are still you know bikes out there uh, that have really, really low front ends, you know, for example, like the DR650, that sort of thing. But it's when we see guys with, you know, you know, big two inch rises, like there's, there's a problem here. So would there be times when a a person is, I don't know, long legged or something like that, where it would be advisable for them? Uh, yeah, possibly. I mean, I'm pretty long legged, you know, I'm, I'm six two and I'm, I'm, I'm all legs and, I run a lower than standard front end on most of my bikes. I lower the front end of my bike, not raise it. Um, Yeah. Put it this way. I've never had anyone come to a school that I've managed to convince them to ditch their bar risers. And I've never had anybody get back to me afterwards go, no, that was terrible. I've put the bar risers back on. Oh, you've, you've told them to ditch them. They've ditched them and they've never went back. Yeah, yeah. So... Uh, again, I've learned to mellow out on this. It used to be I used to send out in the in the in the, in the um, lead up to the schools. Hey, don't show up with bar risers. Take your bar risers off. I'll show you why you don't want them there. For, you know, they're for dummies. That wasn't so popular. <laughs> so now, now the literature is: Hey, if you guys are coming to the school, please bring what you need to take your bar risers off. Bring the bring the the factory bolts. Bring the factory mounts. You may find that you would you want to change them uh, to reduce to take them out during the day, and we'll we'll help you out with that. So just we're not t- we don't tell you that you have to. We just tell, ask you to be prepared to take them out if you want to. And now eleven o'clock, generally in the schools, eleven o'clock is stop for a cup of coffee whilst at least half the school takes their bar risers off. Mm, wow. Okay. So, yeah, what, so what do you think, what, what is in your mind, uh, the problem with bar risers? I can already, I can already hear the angry listeners going, oh, this guy doesn't know what he's talking about. <laughs> I apologize. I know, I know that they, some people really, really like them. That's fine. You're only asking my opinion. That's uh, it. I'm not right. Yeah. It's just my opinion. Um, the higher your handlebar, the higher the bars get, the harder it is to get pressure into the front tire. The less pressure you have on the front tire, the more inclined the front tire is to slide out. The slower the bike turns, the more inclined you are to drift wide, all that sort of stuff. Also, the higher the front end of the bike, generally the higher you'll stand, the more straight up and down you'll become, at which point your body personally loses a lot of stability. So when you hit that soft sand, when you hit that big unexpected bump, that sort of thing, 
your moving body, your moving upper body, your head, your shoulders, all that sort of stuff exerts a great big torque, a great big moment on the bike that makes a bad situation become worse. Um, when you're talking about not getting the pressure on the front wheel, it's because you're more vertical. Yep. Yep. And the response I often get from guys are like, well, but when I'm going down big, long, straight sections and the, the road's not too smooth, uh, sorry, not too rough, and I'm not really too worried, it's so much more comfortable to stand up with my bra rise. It's like 100%. It totally is. But why not just sit down there? <laughs> Another good, good way to think about it as well is uh, we often ask the guys, you know, how, how do you think KTM comes up with – the bar height, the foot peg height, all that sort of stuff. And go, oh, they must be, you know, some scientific number. There must be some equation. There must be some formula. No, it's not. It's just hours and hours and hours and hours of testing with bikes where you can move the foot pegs around, bikes where we can set the bar position, we can move everything all around. And we come up with different, you know, through different shaped humans, different sized riders, we come up with a pretty average middle setting and if you're going more than a few millimeters either way out of that you're probably starting to do funky stuff it's a trial and error thing get a bunch of 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 top riders out there who are really in tune with the bikes and they can feel what's going on yeah that's an interesting fact the boring side of it is is generally an experienced rider the guys the type of guys that will use will go yeah i reckon it'll be that position there and you kind of guess it pretty much straight, right, straight away. Two weeks later, you're still trying to prove that guess. <laughs> so you have to go <laughs> to every option, every like, no, this feels bad, no, this feels bad, no, this feels bad. And you already know where you want them to be, but you've got to go through every possible uh, scenario to, 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 prove the, uh, to prove the hypothesis. Scientific testing, right? So um, where do we go from here with the setup? So the, the next thing I would really focus on uh, in terms of like basic setup uh, for, for an adventure bike, but of course, the next thing I would really, really look at is the position of the rear brake um, because I find this is something that a lot of guys really struggle with. And again, we come back to that compromise between off-road use and, and road use. So obviously road riding, we're tending to do almost all of it sitting down. So if we have the rear brake set at an angle where it's accessible when we're sitting down, when we then go to stand up, the rear brake pedal becomes way too low. So when you go to activate it, when you go to use the back brake standing up, you end up having to push your knee forwards, rotate your knee forwards, rotate your hips around, put yourself in a less stable position, and your foot ends up rocking so far down that you kind of end up standing on the brake pedal like it's a third foot peg. So your weight comes off the foot peg and kind of transfers down onto the brake pedal. So that obviously makes it really hard to feel for that braking pressure. You're coming into the situation, the braking situation in an unstable body position and your back brake kind of becomes like a light switch. It's either off or on. Whereas we want to be using the back brake like a dimmer switch. We're going to be winding that pressure in and out, modulating, controlling it, feeling for the traction. So the way I try to set my rear brake up is I run my rear brake pedal so that it comes to a rest just slightly above parallel with the foot peg, and then it engages, actually starts to engage the rear brake at parallel with the foot peg. That position allows me to keep my knees locked in, it allows me to keep my shins vertical, and it allows me to kind of still hold my weight on the foot peg and brake 
using my toes rather than using my whole foot. The downside to that is I do have to move my foot around, lift my foot off the brake pedal to get to the rear brake when I'm on the street, when I'm sitting down. But generally on the street, uh, I have more time to do that. You know, I can see the corners coming earlier. I have more time to do that. And I don't use a heck of a lot of rear brake on the street anyway. If we come back to the compromise, for me, the compromise is it's a little bit more uncomfortable to get to it on the street. And if it's too low on the off-road, I know I'm going to crash. I know I'm going to blow my corners wide. Uh, I'm going to have big problems. And also, as you tip your foot down, you've got your toe exposed. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, you don't want your toe to become the lowest point on the uh, on the bike. That's for sure. Some bikes and, have a, have a like a two step pedal. Yep, yeah, they do. Uh, it's it's a pretty good setup, a pretty good thing. Um, I personally don't bother with it myself. I just set it to where I want it to be for my off road, and then just deal with it on the street. Um, but yeah, I, uh, it's uh, quite a, a common thing on the on the BMWs. Uh, a lot of guys run those, and the, that's a, a good setup for the BMWs because uh, they don't have a lot of adjustability in the lever. Um, the, the back brake setup is very, very sensitive to change. Um, you don't have the range of adjustment that you have, for example, like on a, excuse them, on a KTM, I'll just say it. <laughs> yeah, the KTM, you can put your brake lever wherever you want. The BMWs are a bit more, no, you will have it here. <laughs> they know what's best. So, yeah. So, yeah. so on the street though, you're, you're actually having to lift your foot up and set it on the brake. Yeah, I am. I am. But then, you know, a lot of the bikes have in, in your street modes and your, uh, in your street setups, uh, have linked brakes now anyway. And yeah, mm. I, personally, I don't find it affects my street riding too much. And again, I'm happy to swing my compromise towards the off-road and just take it a bit easier on the street. Yeah. The only time I adjust it down low so I can adjust it, sorry, sorry, I can reach it when I'm sitting down is if I'm going to go and do some exploring with my wife on the back because that in that situation I'll be doing a lot more, even of my off-road sitting down, I'm sitting down basically the whole day. Um, so I need to adjust my rear brake to make that make that acceptable. How do you adjust them if there is no adjustment or if there's very little adjustment like the BMWs you mentioned? Um, I generally, most of them, most bikes have some adjustment. Uh, the other thing I often encourage people to do, like a real common one we'll get, for example, would be, uh, especially like female riders, like I just can't reach my back brake. The, the brake's just way too far away. The reach is, is too far. My feet just aren't that long. And I'll just say to them, like, just get your hacksaw out shorten it you know shorten the lever modify it make the time that you spend on that will make your life so much better it's mm. such an easy quick way to fix your uh, to fix something in your riding to fix a problem and uh, when when they've done uh, when people do do that like oh it's it's like a, a light bulb moment yay now i can use my rear brake now i've got stability now i've got control rather than it's this thing that's way too far away that i'm never actually going to be able to use so as far as setup, um, are, are we done here? Are we going to touch the, the shift lever at all? Um, I mean, God, we could spend the, the next hour. I mean, there's so much to talk about with setup. It's a never-ending thing. Uh, shift lever, same same theory, is just resting just slightly above parallel with the foot peg. So not too high, not too low. If it's too low, uh, like you talked about previously, your toe is going to become the lowest point as you go to shift, and that's not safe. Um, and also if it is too low, 
to you end up having to really hinge your knee a long way around. It can be quite awkward to shift when you're standing. Um, and then the other side of it, if it's too high, if it's excessively high, um, you'll end up accidentally knocking it, bumping it, and you know, doing that classic just gently put the bike into neutral halfway up a hill climb trick. Now you mentioned um, you, you started off by talking about uh, fork tube adjustments, etc. Is that something yeah. that the average rider does? Is that something you teach people? Uh, yeah, it's something I, I teach uh, at all the schools, um, mainly as a way to get around a problem. So if the guys aren't experiencing a problem, don't worry about it. If you feel like you know your bike's head shaking, it's it's unstable, it's flapping around in the sand. Here's a really quick, like five minute way you can fix that problem. Um, if you're on, you know, the, 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 the gravel roads, the dirt roads, and you're constantly, you know, you're drifting wide, you're coming out, you know, you're drifting onto the, un, you know, the wrong side of the road a bit, the bike's not turning how you want it to do in five minutes, you can drop lower the front end a little bit. That might solve your problem and stop you running wide into a truck. Happy times. Um, so it's, it's something that, that I, I go through at all the schools and it does make quite a big difference. Um, you, you can get that effect in playing around with your rear suspension sag as well. Obviously, you're you're adjusting your chassis there as well. Uh, for me personally, and again, just this is just me talking. Um, I tend to make my rear sag correct, so measure it uh, with a tape measure to get, to get the the sag how it's supposed to be, and then I adjust my geometry, my chassis geometry through the fork tubes rather than the, with my rear sag. Now, of course, if, if somebody doesn't understand what they're adjusting or what they're supposed to be feeling, they need to sign up for a course. <laughs> Go see somebody and, and get some instruction with that's, I think, obvious with this. Yeah, I mean, there's obviously uh, you're not going to hear me arguing about that. But mm-hmm. uh, uh, the, I think the best way to look at a, at a riding school or a riding course is just look at it as a fast forward button. But you will, I, I'm not reinventing the wheel you'll figure out everything I know over the course of 20 years, whatever. That's, you know, that's what I've done. You know, you, I've gathered the information over, over a very, very long time or for a couple of hundred bucks, I can tell you everything I know today. (laughs) Exactly. Well, it's the same thing. It's the same thing with an apprenticeship. I was going to say, isn't it? I mean, the reason you go and learn off the person that's been working there for years in your apprenticeship is to do the fast track. Yeah. Yeah. It's just hitting a fast forward button. Yeah. more setup stuff. A, a big question that we get asked a lot is, is suspension setup. That that's probably one of the. Uh, I would say tires is number one. Suspension is number two. And you know how to tell Chris? Tell me what settings should I have on my bike? From you know I'm two hundred pounds. I like this sort of riding. What should I do? And oh my gosh, it's such a hard question to answer. Um, you know, the suspension adjustments, dialing your suspension in is, is a really tough one. And the uh, the way I kind of try to answer the questions the best of my abilities is trying to teach the guys how to find the answer themselves. Mm. So the process I always recommend to guys for setting up their suspension is job number one is make sure your spring rates are right. So get your tape measure out, get your handbook out, get your owner's manual out, and most of the owner's manuals will talk you through how to set the sag correctly, measure your sag. Uh, really important to remember is uh, you know, there's two different types of sag. There's static sag, 
which is how much your rear suspension drops under the bike's own weight. And then there's rider sag or race sag, which is how much the bike drops under its own weight with you on it all loaded up, all ready to go. Um, with adventure riding, that can change a lot greatly depending on how our bike's loaded up, how much gear we've got, that sort of thing. So, for example, you know, if a, a lightweight guy on a uh, on an EXC just going out for a quick ride with his buddies, the loading there compared to, you know, having bags on the back, heavier guy, the, you could potentially be losing half your suspension travel, let alone the effects that ha- that has on the geometry of the bike and that sort of thing. So getting those sag numbers correct is so freaking important. And in terms of setting up a bike, uh, probably the best value for money you can ever spend on the bike would be getting the correct spring rates for your weight, your weight and your setup. Uh, that would be the, the best value for money you could do in terms of suspension setup. Once you've got your spring rates right, and remember that the, the tape measure never lies, it'll always tell you what's what the truth is. Um, from there, you need to start playing around with your adjusters, playing around with your clickers. And the process I always recommend to guys is go through and record where your bike is to start off with. So, okay, my fork compression. Click, 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 click. Wind that down all the way to the end. Count the numbers. Okay, that's at 12. Set it back to where it was. Rebound. Click, 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 click. Okay, that was at 14. Write that down. Set it back to where it was. Go through every adjuster on your bike. Record where it's at. Fold that piece of paper up and put it away somewhere really safe. So if you turn your bike into a complete donkey, you can go back and start again. It's freedom to fiddle. Mm. From there, we need to go and find a trail or a bit of riding that reflects what you're interested in. Get really familiar with that short bit of trail. You know, so three or four minutes is enough. And then go for really, really big changes. So, okay, what does it feel like if I crank my fork compression to full hard? Okay, it feels like that type of rubbish. Yeah, that's horrible. Okay, now I know what that does. What does it feel like if I completely open my fork compression dampening, open it to full, as far as it'll go on the minus side of things? Okay, now it feels like that sort of wallowy, horribly bad. Now we know what the fork compression adjuster does. Set that back to where it was. Set it back to the middle, whatever it is. Same thing with your rebound adjuster. All the way in, all the way out. Same with your shock. Or each, individual, each individual adjuster, go to the extremes just so that you start to learn to understand what those adjusters actually do in terms of riding down the trail. Because when you're new to it, you're never going to notice two or three clicks of change. You need to go to the full extremes to really understand what those adjusters do in terms of how your bike behaves. From there, you can start dialing it in. So you go, okay, look, it's doing this. I wish it would stop doing that. That feels like maybe it was what I experienced when I had the rebound too open. Okay, we'll start closing the rebound. Yeah, that's making it better. Okay, cool. We're starting to understand how these adjusters actually influence the bike as we're going down the trail. If you go through all that process and you still can't get it right, that's a really, really good time to go and start seeing your suspension tuning, guys. At that point, if you've been through this process, you know your spring rates are right, you know your sag numbers are right, you've got a really good understanding of what your bike's doing, what your bike's not doing, what you want it to do. So when you go and see the suspension tuning guy, you've got really, really good information to to talk to that person with. You're like, this is what I want. This is exactly what I want my bike to do. 
Because the mistake a lot of people will make is they don't go through that process first and they just go and see their suspension tuning guy and go, hi, I've got a DR650, whatever it is. I weigh 180 pounds. Will you make my bike good, please? And the guy just takes a really, takes a guess. You know, it's an educated guess, but it's still a guess. If you can go to that guy armed with all this information of what you want your bike to do, what it's doing now, what you want it to stop doing, what you want it to, to actually do, that guy's going to be able to give you such better value for money because they're not cheap, these dudes. You, you want to get the most out of them. Right. Okay, so that, that sort of covers the basics then, does it? I can do. <laughs> Did you have more? <laughs> oh, man. Honestly, man, you you can. I only have so much tape here, talk. Chris. Exactly. Yeah, you, you can, you can, I tend to geek out on this stuff quite a bit, as, as you may not have may have already noticed. Uh, you can spend forever working on bike setup, and without spending any money whatsoever. Like, I, I I'm I'm a bit of a geek with it. Like, it'll take me. Well, I've just gone and got this new twelve ninety R. I've put my handlebars pretty much where I want them. I know basically where they need to be, but it's still going to take me about an hour of riding up and down the, the dirt road near my house to get them to exactly where I want them to be. You know, I'm pretty fussy on this sort of stuff. Well, when so, you're doing this and these instructions that you've given, you're doing one thing at a time, I gather. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. One, one test per change. Right. Sure. And, and that makes it so you can actually tell what you're doing. Because if you if you change three things, you have no clue what's going on. Not a clue. You yeah. need to be way better than I am. Um, <laughs> so thank you for pointing that. I totally missed that out. So you saved me on that one. Thank you. Now, dare I ask you about tires? Sure. Uh, this is one of those topics that can go anywhere. And I think a lot of people um, look at tires and you see the questions all the time. This is the bike I ride. What's the best tire? Yeah. Um, how do you how do you approach tires? Um, my way of looking at it is I try and think of and the way I try and describe it to people is try to think of your bike's tires as like your shoes. If you're changing your purpose, if you're changing your expectations, you need to change your shoes. You wouldn't expect your work shoes to go hiking. You wouldn't go bowling in your dancing shoes. In that same frame of mind, most people genuinely don't buy one pair of shoes and only wear those shoes until they're completely worn out and destroyed and then go out and buy another set of shoes. It's okay to have a few different pairs of shoes and change them for the situation of what's coming up or what's important to you. So, for example, if you're going away on a holiday and you can only take one pair of shoes with you, you're probably going to take something that is relatively universal. But, you know, I'm going on this holiday and I know I'm going to do uh, at least a, a dec one decent hike. That's kind of why I, uh, I want to go to this place. So I'd probably take the shoes that work well on the hike because that's the important part for me on that holiday. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense or am yeah, I getting a bit vague? That, that makes perfect sense. That's, that's how I think as well. Um, the same, th- same way. So, so you have me agreeing with you as you're saying this. Okay, cool. I thought maybe I was getting a bit vague. Yeah. So you can't expect one tire to do everything. It just doesn't work like that. No matter what the manufacturers promise us and tell us that, that they can, it just doesn't work like that. Well, well, the thing is, I think with tires is most people look at is they want a tire that's amazing off-road, gets incredible traction off-road, is incredible to ride on the street and wears forever. 
and it better not cost more than 150 bucks. Oh, absolutely. It's got to be an expensive too. I mean, it's, how yeah. much more could you ask for? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, it comes back again to the whole compromise thing, right? Like, you know, adventure bike riding, dual sport riding, it's a sport of compromises. Where, what do you, what do you want to compromise? For me personally, I, it's all about the off-road. I, I, it's all about those moments of, you know, finding what's down the end of that ugly trail. So I'm happy to compromise a bit of longevity. I'm happy to compromise a lot of road performance to have that tire that's going to get me through that nasty stuff. That's, that's what's important to me. Mm. Um, having said that, I've probably got, you know, at the moment I've got three sets of wheels that I'm at home with three completely different types of tires on it. So I've, I'm fortunate I can just quickly swap my wheels over so I can match my tire to my requirements. If I was going to go for a big, long cruise down to the South Island, I wouldn't use the same tires that I'd use for a day trip from my house because they wouldn't last. They, were, they wouldn't get me there. Um, so it's about matching your tire to the requirements of your ride. So, because you're running, you're running quite a knobby tire close to home because you're staying on trails, and if and if you're going to hit the the highway at all, you want something that's going to give at least a little bit of wear. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it's all very well and good me saying, yeah, the off road's the most important thing for me, but if I run a full blown knobby tire, and then I go off adventure touring, by the time I get to the off road, it won't exist anymore. <laughs> you know, it'll, it'll be a bald canvas. So, again, it, it, it's all all part of this compromise and I think the only real way to do it is just to look to see where what you're happy to sacrifice in terms of where you want that performance for your ride and and like you said as well you know you want to choose your tire to help you through the bits that you suck at yeah <laughs> you know <laughs> it's all very well you know having saying some super long distance like like a you know hide now scout that lasts forever but if your goal is to go and see the top of this mountain and you're not going to have enough traction to get up there, what was the point in riding to the base of it in the first place? Mm. I, I think a good way to describe it as well, you know, everyone, it seems the adventure bike community, people really, really focus on, on longevity of the tire and, and how, you know, how good a tire is depends how many Ks you can get out of it. Mm-hmm. You know, a real common question guys always ask is, you know, how long does that tire last you, Chris? And the way I try and describe it to guys is I try and think of tire life in units of fun. <laughs> so, this tire has got maybe 100 fun units in it. <laughs> if I want to go and spend all those in a day, I'm going to have a really fun day, but there's going to be nothing left of it by the end of the day. Um, you know, all the fun will be sprayed up the bank. Um, yeah. I think of a tire and, and, and how much abuse it can take rather than how many Ks it can do. Think of, of your tire life in units of fun rather than units of distance and your, and your rider can change a bit. Mm. You have a great way of talking about tire pressure. Can you, can you talk about how you tell or how you answer the question, what is the ideal tire pressure? Um, well, I hope I answer it in the way that you want me to answer it now. I feel like I've been led into it. <laughs> <laughs> I've set you up on this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, so I genuinely most of the time have no idea what pressures in my tires, not a clue. Um, and it's more about, is my tire pressure working for me? Is it helping me in this situation? Yes or no. If the answer is yes, happy times. If the answer is no, change it. Mm. Um, 
So if you're riding along and you're, uh, you know, you're bouncing, you're deflecting off the rocks, you're bouncing around on the trail, uh, you've had more than two or three goes at getting up a bit of a hill, um, you're struggling for traction. Those are all really good, strong signs that you maybe need to drop that tire pressure down a bit, get a bit. A good way to think about it is, um, especially with you know, hidden bumps on rocks, is your tire is your first part of your suspension. In order for the for the impact of hitting the rock to even get to your suspension, it has to go through your tire first. So softening that tire can basically have the same effect of, of making your first initial part of your suspension travel softer and plusher and more traction, that sort of thing. Um, See, I like this because you're talking about um, you're, you're talking about going out there and riding it and getting a feel for what it feels like. And I know you've said yeah, before, yeah. I've heard you say, then you check the, the tire pressure and see what you've got. Yeah, yeah. So often, you know, guys, what, what tire pressure should I, should I run for this tire? Well, go out, take a pump, let the tire down, pump the tire up, play around with it, get it to feel good. Get to feel exactly how you want it to feel in terms of riding down the trail that's important to you. Pull your pressure gauge out and see what that pressure is. Hmm. Then you make it. The other side of it is, yeah, yeah. Okay, well, that's the tire pressure that I should be riding in this sort of terrain on these type of tires on my bike. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Rather than what some guy in New Zealand told you, (laughs) Um, figure it out for yourself. I should say, like, I'm probably influenced more by uh, by my terrain here in, in the North Island of New Zealand where we don't have a lot of rock, but it's very slippery and greasy. And, you know, we come back to these KTM adventure rides. You know, my job on the first day of most of these KTM adventure rides is to stand on the side of the first hill and scream at people to let their tires down. <laughs> and, you know, we've had we got caught out a, a couple of years ago. We got this, you know, freak rainstorm came through in a track that should have been really easy just stop the whole event and i got there and it looked like a scene out of band for brothers there was just bikes and steam and mud going everywhere so i quickly rode my bike to the top of the hill pulled my compressor out had it hanging off off my handlebars sort of thing on my bike ran back down to the bottom of the hill like right guys i need you to let your tires down to 15 psi here when you get to my bike at the top of the hill pump them back up again that's the only way we're going to keep this event running um, only where we're going to get people through here. And you can see guys like, oh, I can't really be bothered. That's a bit of a hassle. <laughs> can you not just give us a push? I'm like, dude, I've got 100 bikes I need to get through this trail. I ain't pushing you. Let your tire down. <laughs> and, and so it's okay. I mean, that's something you do. You, you're adjusting your tire pressure throughout a day then. Definitely, yeah. But then the same thing, right? Like if we, if we didn't give the guys, if I screamed at the guys to let their tires down to 15 PSI and then sent them off down the trail, I would have a whole other problem. Mm-hmm. I would have a hundred guys with flat tires within the next 20 kilometers. So in those extreme situations, I'm definitely, I'm, I'm dropping my pr- tire pressure down really, really low to get through those ugly situations. But I then got to take the time to pump it back up again, to look after my tires, look after my tubes, look after my wheels um, so that I don't create those problems further down. So your tire pressure is, uh, you know, should be a, a constantly changing thing. Anytime you have a problem, you should change your tire pressure to, to help ease the problem. And it's a lot easier than pushing an adventure bike anywhere. Definitely. Now, what about uh, mismatched tires front and rear? Uh, big fan of it. Huge fan of it. So okay. what do you do? I, again, I've just, uh, I'm, I'm setting up my, my 1290R at the moment. Uh, you know, that thing's 160 horsepower. It just wow. destroys tires. So, 
I want to go and do a big explore up the peninsula in the next couple of days. Uh, it's going to be mainly gravel, dirt roads, bit of a bit of uh, bit of farmland, that sort of thing. Um, so I'm running a quite aggressive, knobbly front tire because I want that front tire to stay locked in on the gravel. I want to have a good go at it. You now I want to go ride aggressively. I want to explore on the farmland. I want my front tire to be locked in, and I know that that tire is going to make the distance no problem whatsoever on the front. If I put the same super aggressive knobbly on the rear of that 1290R, it would chew it up and spit it out the back probably within about 100 kilometers. So I've gone for uh, an E07 Plus Mitis on the rear, which is obviously a lot bigger block pattern. It's going to give me a lot more wear. It's going to stand up to the abuse that the 1290R is going to give it. So I've got my front tire really locked in. And I'm going to sacrifice a bit of traction in the rear just to get that longevity to, to, to do the ride that I want to do. So I, I think that's a, a quite common setup that a lot of guys will go through is go for, especially on the, the bigger, higher performance bikes. You know, something that's going to stand up better in the rear, but something more aggressive in the front to keep that front tire locked in. You know, if, if your back tire is sliding around a bit, that's not too terrifying can be really good fun but when the front tire starts letting go that's a different scenario are you always running a a knobby on the front of your adventure bikes um pretty much yeah pretty much always because uh, i don't love road riding um the speed i want to ride on the street i'm not going too fast for a knobby anyway the only time I would put more of a, a 50-50 sort of tire on the front would be if I was going to go and do some road touring with Monica just to go and check somewhere out. But I would say 75% of the time I've got a, a knobby on the front. And, I, and, I, and I, I should just say, and I know that when it rains on the, on the asphalt, I know I have to slow down. I know my braking distances are going to be increasing, so I'm really, really mindful of that. Mm-hmm. And I just toot along and take it pretty easy. The other side of it as well is our police in New Zealand just love motorbikes. So it gives me <laughs> another reminder to try and keep my license in my pocket. I was going to say with your 1290R, I think you could probably get that detuned so you won't have that problem with the rear tire getting torn up so fast. <laughs> That's no fun. <laughs> Remember, tire life in units of fun. <laughs> right, right, units of fun. I'll have to, I'll have to work that through my mind uh, when we're done talking. <laughs> Chris, great to talk to you. I really appreciate you coming on the show. I've enjoyed doing this and always learn. Thank you very much. Only a pleasure. Thanks for your time. That was the Say No to Slow Guy, Chris Birch from his home in New Zealand. Chris goes around the world teaching people how to ride, how to how to better their off-road riding skills. And he also has an, an amazing online video course that you can just buy and do on your own time. He does one-on-one coaching on the internet as well over Skype or whatever, so you don't have to physically be there with him. Find out more about him at his website, chrisbirch.co.nz or NZ. That stands for New Zealand, which of course is where he uh, is from and where he lives. Now, we'll have those links in the show notes as always.
Hey, I just want to remind you that this episode has been brought to you by Green Chili Adventure Gear, greenchiliadv.com, Motobreeze Chain Oiler at motobreeze.com, and Best Rest Products at cyclepump.com. And we'd really appreciate it if anytime you're dealing with these companies, anytime, email or otherwise, let them know you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. up another episode of Adventure Rider Radio and we sure hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did making it. Special thanks to our producer Elizabeth Martin and of course to you the listener. Thank you so much for being a part of this. I really hope you consider becoming uh, one of our patron crew um, or supporting the show in some way. Remember we have another show called ARR Raw. It's a once a month round table talk about motorcycle travel where a group of us get on there and uh, chat about different topics and it's great fun. We have uh, great feedback for, from it and it's uh, I think you'll enjoy it. So Anyway, look it up. Remember, you have to subscribe separately. It doesn't come in the feed for this show. Anyway, time to get out there and ride your bike if you can. My name is Jim Martin. Thank you very much for listening. I will talk to you next week. Glenn Hickstead, and you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. (laughs) 